Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. So this episode is brought to you by NorthPass Business. Against small businesses and startups, they often work with limited resources and reduce costs wherever possible. While this is sometimes practical, cybersecurity is one area where you don't want to cut corners. Creating strong, unique passwords for your company's accounts is a surefire way to defend your business from data breaches. However, with the number of personal and work logins we use daily, it's very easy to get password fatigue, leading to reusing the same passwords across accounts. So NordPass Business is a powerful password manager for organizations that removes the difficulty of generating and remembering strong passwords for you and your colleagues. Additionally, it allows for you to integrate single sign-on with your company's Google Workspace accounts and effortlessly create groups to share sensitive information across teams and projects. So see NordPass Business in action now with a three-month free trial by going to nordpass.com forward slash Pantera and use the code Pantera. This episode is brought to you by Basecamp. So Basecamp is a project management and team communication application that has been around for about 18 years, and it's used by thousands of companies today. Basecamp is all about simplicity. It is designed to give you and your team the tools you need to get work done. They have message boards, to-dos, file storage, chat calendar, and much more. Basecamp is built to help you in getting out of your way and let you focus on what matters. Again, you know, like when you're adding a bunch of people, there's a bunch of files that need to be shared. You need to be effective. And that's where Basecamp comes in. They actually are from the guys that brought to you 37 signals. And really, they help in making decisions simple and also effective. So go to Basecamp. Their pricing is simple and they give you the all, all really the features in a single plan. No upsells, no upgrades. Go to Basecamp.com forward slash dealmakers and try Basecamp for free. No credit card required and cancel at any time. Thank you, Basecamp, for sponsoring this episode. All righty. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a very exciting founder, you know, a founder that not only, you know, he's a founder himself, but also he has invested in tons of startups. So, you know, he's built a rocket ship. You know, I'm actually a very happy customer, you know, of their of their company. And I think that you're all going to find his story very inspiring. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Des Trainer. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much, Alejandro. So originally from Ireland, you know, you haven't moved much. So give us a little bit of a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up there in Dublin? I grew up in Dublin in the 1980s. It was pretty much a bad time economically for the country before us joining the European Union and getting all those benefits or whatever. So jobs are hard to come by. I was the youngest of seven. All my brothers emigrated to the United States. Um, and yeah, I just probably had a typical normal Dublin 1980s childhood, like, you know, playing soccer and like, you know, I think I got my first computer in like 88. It was a, a Commodore VIC-20 and then I upgraded in like 91 or 92 to an Amiga 500. Kind of always interested in tinkering with computers. Really, I went, I, it all kicked off when I went to actual university in 2000, sorry, 1999. I went, I enrolled to study computer science and software engineering. And that was where, um, that was where, you know, I think. I started to make irreversible, you know, decisions in life. Uh, one of which was, you know, making a career out of computing. 
And uh, yeah, so that was kind of like, that would bring you through most of my childhood. It was mostly misspent, uh, bad attempts at being a musician, bad attempts at being a soccer player. But when it turned around to computers, I felt I always had some sort of knack of making things work or getting things to happen. And what, where do you think that interest, you know, for computers came from? I, it was entirely fueled, to, to, in my opinion, by like, a, I had a friend who was actually from L.A., uh, I used to hang out in his house all the time and he was the, he had a Commodore 500, Amiga 500 and we used to just play computer games, like real typical misspent youth stuff like, but he got this device called an action replay, which was you could plug it into the side of the computer and it would literally let you edit what's in memory for the computer. And the more I tinkered with that, the more I felt I had, I was growing a kind of innate understanding of how computers work. We started like cheating in computer games. So we could like, no, not online because there was no internet back then. But like we were able to like reprogram memory to say, no, I don't have two lives left. I have 20 lives left and all that sort of stuff. That was like where like the sort of interest started where whenever we got a new game, much as we were trying to play it, at least 51% of my brain was trying to work out how am I going to cheat this thing? Like uh, what are the ways in which I need to like plant tracers in memory and see what if my ammunition goes down or up, how do I rewrite it so it never runs out and all this sort of stuff. And, um, and yeah, that was like, uh, that was where it started. And then it was really only like in 99 when I, uh, enrolled and actually studied, like, you know, proper how computers actually work. I realized then what we were actually doing versus what I thought we were doing. But yeah, th that was what kind of grew the interest initially. And what was, because obviously, you know, when, when you were right after school, I mean, you really took seriously investigating web three, web two actually. Uh, yeah. and, uh, you know, we had the flickers of the world and, and so forth, but, but what were you what were you like discovering as you were investigating and what kind of interest was say peaking you know from that investigation yeah i mean geez web 2 was such a rich environment like in like i, I you know i'll just come and say in comparison with web 3 where i still can't work out what the hell's going on to be totally blunt about it um with web 2 like it felt like overnight technologies like ajax uh, emerged javascript got taken seriously then you'd like better developer frameworks like rails emerged after and I think in general, what, I, what, was, what was happening very clearly in front of our eyes, like you could take Gmail be an extreme example, or like Google Maps. I don't know if you remember the launch of Google Maps, but the whole like slippery foot floor effect where you could drag them up and throw it and it would slide and all that sort of stuff. All of that just to me, what it looked like was a new like, model of computing where previously we had been taught that UI meant buttons, text inputs, uh, drop down fields those sort of very okay cancel dialogues, like those sort of very primitive pieces of product user interface. Um, with Web 2, it was all thrown aside and it was like designed the best possible experience. And you mentioned Flickr, like uh, other tools like Delicious were out at the time. Gmail was, was launched in around this time as well. What we kind of realized was like, wow, the best interface is going to win. So while I, I, at the time I was actually uh, attempting a PhD in, in uh, my university, um, but I was way more interested in what was happening on a daily basis. I was like, refreshing like dig.com. Some of the listeners will remember it or read it uh, back then. It was like, mostly uh, tech focused. And all I really cared about was like, what's new in technology? And every other day there seemed to be some new cool uh, you know, technology emerged like DabbleDB or 280 North or any of these things just kept getting released. And like, Man, it was it was an incredible time for tech, and eventually I just got more obsessed with that than I than I was even close to being interested in the PhD. So I started writing about it, reading about it, learning how to program in it, etc. And then ultimately transitioned into a career like working on usability initially, product design, and then ultimately product management. Uh, and that was it was all prompted by just sort of 
the breakthrough tech of that era. It was just incredible. Do you think that uh, that interest also that you developed for blogging has helped you when it comes to storytelling? You know, whether that is uh, the, you know, figuring out how to package and position something for customers or figuring out how to raise capital from investors. How do you think that has helped you? I think like I've always had a keen interest in, in I've always been a, an avid reader of like fiction to be clear like I mean I, re I read lots of things but I mean I think it's I think people underestimate the value of reading fiction and reading good stories um like you know it, it's we all like to say that we sit at home and read like you know PhD dissertations but like in practice if you want to be if you want to learn like good writing there's a lot you'll learn from like Dan Brown's The Da Vinci Code there's a reason why it sold so much it did you know you know like there's like there's a lot to be said about just great engaging writing that people miss so i was i generally have always read a lot and i've always like been a quite a um like a, a meta reader like trying to like when i read something i also think about why is this so engaging and i think oh it's because every paragraph leads to the next or because oh it keeps confusing me and it keeps like, it gives me like a lack of closure and i feel like i need to go back so i always think about that whenever i observe good writing at at the time i read a lot of uh paul graham's articles obviously on paulgraham.com Joel Spolsky, probably one of the biggest influences on my writing. Uh, Joel on software.com was his website. It was like um, just, you know, just a, a, both very comical and very, um, very, how would you say, just informative writer. It's probably the style I most try to copy. Uh, but there's a few others. Jeff Atwood's Coding Horror would be in there as well. Daring Fireball by John Gruber. They were, they, these were all the big early influences. That was kind of like who I was trying to be when I was, oh, sorry, I have to say Jason Fried and 37 Signals as well. Um, but that was like who I was trying to be when I started blogging. And I think I, you know, to your question of like, did it help? Yes, I've, I've like no doubt uh, I, it's been at least, at least half of my career I can attribute back. Even the fact of the reason I met Owen, the C, you know, our CEO at Intercom, uh, is actually down to the fact that I was writing and I was writing stuff that he agreed with or whatever, you know, and, uh, and the fact that I even know who he knew who he was was because he was writing too. Uh, so I really think uh, you can't, uh, you really, really can't overstate how important that is as, as a skill. As for Intercom and how it most directly helped, I think our blog was, is, and has always been quite quite popular. And I wrote the first, I guess, 93 of the first 100 blog posts. Uh, these days, I'm mostly just doing our podcast. But uh, I, you know, I think you can build a brand through like, uh, like, you know, good expression of interesting ideas that are relevant to your product. So in the early days of Intercom, we wanted to attract people who were startups who wanted to talk to their customers and wanted to grow a user base. So we wrote about startups, growing user bases, talking to customers, customer communication, customer support. And we grew just a lot of popularity and like as being known as a go-to place uh, to read all that sort of stuff. And I think over the years, then we that translated into like events. We held world tours. We sold out like, you know, like, you know, uh, reasonably large venues in San Francisco and Dublin where people would come along and basically see like a live performance of the blog. In a sense, people would, like all, all folks across Intercom would present different ideas, topics, talks. We'd do like live firesides, et cetera. And I think, yeah, I, I think the skill of content, um, obviously a lot of this is going to be up in the air in the, with the advent of GPT, which we can talk about if you want, but, um, uh, I think that the content has been a massive part of Intercom's uh, sort of founding story and brand. And, uh, and I put a lot of that down to the time invested in writing by not just me, but like I was definitely one of the folks who probably had it more assigned to as a job uh, early on. So then let's talk about Intercom. So, you know, you actually were developing software uh, and, uh, you know, when 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 you were doing that, you know, really the conception of um, of Intercom came to play. So 
So tell us, you know, what was that process of going from ideation to incubation and to launching? So we actually, we built, you know, our model at the time was something akin to like agency that wants to be software startups. So you build stuff for other people and you make profit. And instead of banking that profit or like, you know, taking the time off, you use that spare salary time to build your own uh, ideas. We built quite a few. The... Before Intercom, the most successful thing we had was a Ruby on Rails developer tool called Exceptional. And uh, I think one of the things we were keen to do was, you know, grow Exceptional, like anyone tries to grow a, a software startup. And to do that, we wanted to talk to our customers and, and like learn from them. And the, the tool stack at the time to do that was just awful. It was an export of your database into like a campaign monitor or a MailChimp where you compose your email send it out and if you're lucky you'd get all your replies back straight into your personal inbox <clears throat> which is like a really really messy messy way to um to do this and if there's one thing you learn in usability it's that when, they, when something's hard people just don't do it it's not that they do it less they just they just turn off that like awareness of that so i was you know um at the time i remember talking to own uh and he was saying like you know, if we, if we could talk to customers inside our product, it would be a more effective way. We we built out this widget effectively that sat inside the thing that posted little messages. The messages would be things like, "Hey, uh, like, sorry, we were, sorry, we had some downtime last week or whatever." But very quickly, it felt like a much more direct connection than the convoluted workflow that I was going through to do like our like you know our meet the customers blog posts or whatever I was writing when I was talking to customers, and um. And I just, I was obsessed with this idea that like talking to your customers is a really important thing that every, everyone does. At the time, as an example, we talked about this before, but like we, um, we worked out of a coffee shop and we were witnessing uh, a guy called Colin Harmon build his own coffee empire, 3fe.com there. And he was doing it by like one customer at a time, great, strong relationships, you know, like building people, remembering his regular customers, encouraging them to return. There's no online way to do that. There was no way to like do like actual, like, you know, proper like customer loyalty and retention online. There's no way to build relationships with your customers online. And then, so we, we, we knew it was really important to do, but the tooling wasn't there. Separately, we had this thing that like, you talk to your customers when they're in your product. And we thought like, if you put the two of these things together, like big problem space, uh, obvious solution. We rolled out like, I think, um, a few different versions of an insider old product before we, uh, before I remember I, own, uh, I was at a conference in like, 2010 i think in atlanta or maybe in in jacksonville said like i think the best thing to do here is to like actually go all in on this idea we you know that wasn't as straightforward as it sounds we had a consultancy we had to finish up with clients etc but we uh we did it and that was um that was how intercom was born effectively very cool so what what were the um the early days of intercom like oh brilliant like i mean like they were very stressful like you know 16 hour days um six day weeks or whatever but like uh it was a very responsive time in that everything you did either worked or didn't work and you knew it in minutes, if you know what I mean. Like, uh, so, um, you, like we'd go from like an idea for a feature to the feature being live within a day or two days or three days. And by day four, you'd have a shitload of customer feedback that you'd be parsing through. And, um, and every customer we talked to, like the calls always began. I remember me and Owen jumped on a call with a guy called Garrett Demon who had a product called Sifter. It was a ticket tracker, an issue tracker. And like we jumped on, we had like four questions we wanted to ask him about his usage of intercom. 
I think we were like 40 minutes into the call before he stopped talking about how great this thing was. And, uh, and it was just like, he was telling us all of the like, you know, ways he was using it. And we realized we had really tapped into this idea of a direct line between the people who build the product and the people who use the product. Like we had effectively created that idea of making internet business personal, which was and is our mission. Um, and so like a lot of the time, like for me, the early days was like, I was, you know, effectively doing customer support until we, uh, we had our, I think our sixth or seventh hire was a guy who started doing support for us. Um, and like, it was like just learning about what people are using us for getting features built, like expanding on the idea. Um, you know, you don't like, you don't know what it's going to look like at the end, especially when all we really had was a kind of an abstract idea of connecting businesses and customers. It's like, at the time, we weren't sure, like, will this end up being a help desk? Will this end up being a marketing tool? Will this end up, you know, we, we weren't even thinking in that rich sort of way. All we really knew was it was cool to have a direct line to your customer inside your product. And, uh, and that's what we were working on most was just this idea of, like, knowing who the customer was and letting the customer know who they're talking to. And then how can we make that as rich an experience as possible? And that was genuinely like what I am. Um, what we what we were working on and most days was either building features shipping features explaining features talking to customers and then like there was other like unscalable shit we used to do like i used to like run webinars i mean I'm, i laugh now thinking about it. every week i do a live webinar for an hour um to like sometimes it would be just be like to four people like four people would log on and i'd give them a big a to z soup to nuts pitch of intercom and then three of them would sign up and one of them would quit or whatever. But like, that was how we were growing a user base. It, I, I often laugh now because like whenever like a, a common, you know, podcasty question you get is how did Intercom get its first hundred users or whatever. And I always tell people, well, yeah, we, we, we mailed a thousand people. I used to like, one of the, my jobs was like to literally email customers one by one with like examples of how Intercom would look if they use it in their product, what it could do for them. And like, you know how that sort of um, like cold calling type mail works, like, you know, one in five, you get a response. I was, because I was handcrafting them and making them really specific, I think I was doing, I was doing better on, on an automation tool and I was getting actual replies. So I was learning and crafting and the responses along the way. But like the amount of like um, manual effort we put in early on to just getting the ground swell up and running was pretty high. And I often laugh when I talk to like, you know, founders today who are like, cool is there any way to automate all that and i'm like i don't know if you want to i think it's actually valuable to try and like the webinar got really good because i had to do it 52 times in a row you know like and like you you adapt you tweak you realize what confuses people what excites people just like the the outbound emails i was writing that you every single time you see something that works like you you, you refine and polish and by the time by the time you get to the end of it you really have a good insight as to how to get attention so i i think it's not just you know you're getting better along with your messaging and your positioning getting better. And I just don't think there's a, way, a good way to sort of to automate that. Like, uh, I think you actually want to be going to the gym as it were that often, uh, not just for like, not just for the outcome, but for all the exercise you do along the way, you know. And what ended up being the uh, business model of Intercom for the people that are listening? How do you guys make money? Oh, it, it's it's really, really, I mean, it's, it's going to come back into popularity again, but we just charge money for it. <laughs> so um you pay every month uh, to use intercom um we the pr pricing along the way ha has been a difficult one for us because of the abstract nature of the tool but yeah, yeah generally so we're what's called like a b2b business to business SaaS software as a service subscription tool so basically people pay every month for access to use the software and then 
big companies pay us more because they've got a large amount of people talking to customers and they've got a lot of customers and small co companies usually pay us less because there might be like just two people talking to like 200 customers or something like that. So that's usually how we scale. So at what point do you guys, you know, realize that it makes sense to divide and conquer, meaning you staying in Dublin and, and your and your and Owen, your your co-founder going to to San Francisco? We wanted to raise capital. Uh, Owen was the CEO. VCs are obviously going to want to talk to the CEO first and foremost. So, and and we wanted to raise capital specifically in San Francisco. I think trying to do it in Europe at the time, like you know, another common question you get is, could you have, couldn't you have stayed in Dublin? But at the time, certainly it was going to be a lot easier to raise VC uh, capital in San Francisco. So. Much like actors go to Hollywood and bankers go to Wall Street, startups go to San Francisco, or at least that was definitely the case in 2011. So that's what we did. And Owen moved over there, um, w w not just for the actual VC, but also to uh, to build out the business functions that we we didn't believe we would be able to build in Ireland. So, you know, sales, marketing, finance, et cetera, they're all things where like on the ground in Dublin, there was very, very little experience of like how to do those things for like a fast growing SaaS company. So, uh, so ultimately the way the company ended up was like the product was effectively designed and built in Dublin and it was like brought to market as it were in, uh, in San Francisco from like, you know, so all the GTM functions or go to market functions were all, were all led from over there. So we'll get back to our conversation in a minute, but if you're an entrepreneur or a sales leader, you want to listen to this. Let me tell you about Wingman, not, no, no, not Tom Cruise. Wingman is a conversation intelligence tool that helps folks like you coach and scale up their sales teams really fast, really easy. Now, I know you know scaling is not just about hiring. Getting the team up to speed can be the real speed bump. Well, Wingman can help you in getting that. It lets you build call libraries with game tapes relevant to every sales situation, complete with highlights and notes, and it's Asynchronous, I mean, repeatable sales training engine. Not just that, Wingman even helps during sales calls with contextual battle cards and monologue alerts. The great thing about Wingman is that it plays nice with all your existing tools like Salesforce, HubSpot, Zoom, Teams, and Google. It even syncs up with Slack so you don't have to log into your CRM all the time for deal updates. So head over to trywingman.com to give it a try. That is T-R-Y-W-I-N-G-M-A-N.com is just the wingman your sales needs to really predictably beat revenue targets quarter after quarter. This episode is brought to you by Partner Hero, which provides customer service outsourcing that's built for the needs of scaling and high growth startups. They offer flexible terms, fast onboarding, and the ability to scale teams quickly. Perfect for fast growing businesses. I mean, let's face it, you know, you're all startups. You know, it's time for you to really stop trying to do absolutely everything. You need to get yourself out of the supporting box so you can actually focus on growing your business. So again, Partner Hero is flexible. They have quality assurance. They have offices around the world to really provide that help and support that you need. And if you're ready to bring in outside customer support help for your startup that feels like it's part of your existing team, then check out Partner Hero. Head over to partnerhero.com forward slash dealmakers to book a free consultation with their solutions team and mention that you heard about Partner Hero from Dealmakers and they'll waive the setup fee. 
And how much capital have you guys raised to date? And then also what has been the experience going from one cycle to the next? 247 million is the first uh, answer. And then, um, you know, I, I think the biggest experience I've had, I've only been involved in a couple of the rounds along the way. Um, the biggest experience I'd say is um, early on, uh, it's all about like leading indicators, momentum. But before all of that, it's all just about the story. It's about like the big picture. It's about the vision. What are you trying to create? Like create a sense that there is a gap in the world that if someone solves it, they will build a very large business. And, um, and like the first round was tough because uh, people don't, you know, it's not obvious when you're building something that's kind of totally new which Intercom was in a lot, in a few different ways. Uh, but one of the ways in which it was just new is that like people wanted, like oftentimes uh, venture capitalists will try and like um, pattern match and pigeonholes that are like, oh, you're a blah. So it's like, oh, I don't get it. Are you guys an Assistly or are you a Zendesk or are you a Salesforce or are you a Marketo? And like our answer at the time was like, we're all of those things and none of those things. And we're, we're basically a direct line to your customers. And that was a, a trickier pitch, it would have been easier to say we're just a really good help desk, right? They would have got that. Now, they might have depressed the value or they might have been more skeptical of our success, but they'd at least understand it on first blush. I think early on, I would say, you and like I see this as uh, when I'm investing in startups too, early on, all people have is like uh, an idea, which is hopefully summed up in like a couple of sentences, um, a, a slide deck as to how they're going to go about getting to you know, first base on it or whatever. And um, and then an ask, which is like, give us a million dollars, or these days, more like give us $10 million. And then, uh, and I think like what happens over the over the years or over the rounds, uh, assuming you're successful is the story just shifts, and it shifts from being uh, entirely about like, uh, vision and big picture and like leading indicators and look what people are saying about us, etc. It shifts all the way down to like, uh, to just show me your spreadsheets, you know, create a data room. And what we want to see is, evidence of traction or whatever i think that's like the uh that's the transition so as a result all of the like you know and you're going to see this happen sadly to a lot of startups right now uh given that like what just is happening in the market and given the companies who had hopes to raise money over the next six months all of the jazz hands and fancy pitch decks in the world won't save you if your spreadsheet's not backing it up with like evidence or example um, so I, I think that's just basically like the role of data metrics and like and just market comparisons and all that sort of stuff increases while at the same time, the role of like your, your hype and your pitch and all that decreases. It does not go to zero. I will say that like, it's still really important that you can position a company to have like clearly a big, exciting future ahead of it. That's true all the way through to going public. Like you still need people to believe in the future of the business as well as the present. But for sure, when they're like investing, let's say hundreds of millions, as opposed to like an angel check. Uh, there's a lot more due diligence on is the current state exactly what you promise it is. Got it. Now, in your guys' case, you haven't raised since 2018. So obviously, you know, you're riding this rocket ship, you know, incredible business. You know, typically, you know, investors, you know, would push you, you know, for, hey, keep keep racing, keep growing like crazy. So, you know, what's what's behind, you know, that uh, that thinking of, hey, you know, let's just not 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 keep going on on on, on putting more more gas or more money into this. I would say there's a few different a few different parts to it. First and foremost has been we like have not needed to, and then secondly, it's quite a time sink. And then thirdly, like there's been times when the market's obviously been incredibly strong. I'm like, you know, if if we needed money, we we would have gotten uh, got it quite easy. Uh, but now at times like this, the market's obviously not as strong. So I think you you'd only really be raising now if you 
if you were like stuck in a sense. Yeah. Um, so it's just, it's fundamentally like a lack of like, is it a priority to, to, to change capital in the bank? And, uh, no, what's been the answer, <laughs> you know, it just hasn't been a, hasn't been a priority versus building out a leadership team, localizing, entering different markets, building new products, all that, all that other stuff. Uh, if, if at any point capital became a constraint, I think that, that, that might change it, but I think that hasn't been the case. Got it. Now, in terms of, you know, for the people that are listening to get an idea on how big Intercom is today, anything that you can share in terms of number of employees or anything that you're comfortable sharing? I, I think our employee count is somewhere in the 850 to 900 range. It, it fluctuates. We're always hiring. You know, uh, I, I think more generally, uh, we're like five offices. We have like over 25,000 customers. They have about half a billion conversations with their customers every month. They're the things I actually care about, how many customers we have and how busy are they and how many customers are they talking to. That's like an indication of the, the scale of Intercom. Um, we, ha- we haven't got, um, we, like, we, you know, we're not public about revenue or anything like that at the moment. So, so like, I think the way I, I would assess the magnitude of the business is mostly down to like how many customers we have and are they using us in mission critical ways? And they are, basically. Got it. So, uh, so this, if you were to go to sleep tonight and you wake up in a world where the vision of intercom is fully realized what does that world look like i think uh, it's a world where anytime anyone has to resolve anything with a business over the internet they will have an experience that is like uh, i want to say like easy in that like there's not a million barriers to talk to the business it's personal in that they'll know who they're talking to but also personal for them in that they won't have to reintroduce themselves a million times over giving out their account number every single time they get passed around from like one department to another everyone will know who they're talking to and like you won't have to repeat any information it'll be outcome focused um meaning like you actually just get the thing you don't get like go here to do that the thing gets done for you like absolute resolution versus like direction and then on the business side of things it will be effective and efficient and ultimately like you know uh it'll you know get amazing experiences for your users while still being quite affordable for your business the way i think about that is like design for the users and get results for the business um and so like if you imagine if i woke up tomorrow and somebody had got ahead of us or intercom had got ahead of me and like realized that let's say i bought i mean here like let's say i bought these airpods and i take them out and they don't work i would go to apple.com I would click the messenger and say, my AirPods are broken. And they'd say, hey, Des, are these the AirPods you bought yesterday? Order number, blah, blah, blah. And I'd say, that's the ones. And I'd say, okay, cool. Click here to report default or like we'll report it for you. We're going to send you out a box, put it in, it'll be collected and replaced. And like, by the way, Apple are a great company. So this, this comparison isn't even as extreme as it could be. But right now, if I have to do this, the experience is a lot messier. Uh, it's a lot more like, you know, like, you know, multiple sign-ins, multiple, you know, searching my own email to find receipt numbers and product numbers and serial IDs and all that sort of shit that they already know. Uh, all this just to report back and say, yes, the thing I bought off you is broken. And like, you know, to bring it, bring us back to 2011 for a second. If you got the wrong coffee from Colin, the guy whose coffee shop we used to work out of, you'd walk back up with your coffee and say, this is the wrong coffee. and He'd make you the right one. There was no send me your receipt. Uh, validating there's no you know 72 hour delay there was no submitted ticket there was none of that so i really think like we're trying to bring that world like uh how would you say we're, we're trying to make that world a reality which is just every time you have to engage with an internet business it is fast effective efficient and personal and that's what the, that's what the world like post intercom if you like would look like now 
for you, I mean, you've, you've invested in quite a bit of startups, in 90 startups. So when you look at startups, what are, you know, some of the traits that, uh, that you look at, you know, that are going to make you excited about, you know, making an investment? Yeah, so there's probably two categories I look at. One is like, you know, um, joining around that's for an already like up and running startup. And they're kind of no brainers. You're just looking at like the traction and, and like you don't have to think too hard. When I'm looking at uh, earlier stage startups, generally speaking, I, I need to see a good product that solves a real problem that really matters. Ideally, to, some, to, to something I understand, but if not something I understand, something I can verify really matters. I think a lot of startups will fail on one of those three criteria, like either it's not a good product, it's not a real problem, or it is a real problem, but no one really cares about solving it too much. Like as in businesses are happy to just, you know, whatever, throw headcount at it or just leave it broken and they don't really care. So like they're the sort of, they're the initial three criteria. And like, I would say that account, like, you know, 80% of my rejects, as in the, the ones I say no thank you to, they fail on one of those. Either the problem is just too small or it doesn't matter product's not good enough or the solution isn't really a proper solution um so like that like that's the first way after that like the next question that i've had to learn the hard way to ask is just um like the founder's motivation uh sometimes people uh like when i'm investing they also want like they would appreciate like you know a call every quarter or whatever and i just i don't have the time to do that i really don't like i intercom is a full-time job so I try to be as much as much as possible a kind of one and done type investor who I'll, I'll reply to stuff by email and I'll read the odd report and I do that on the weekends because I actually just love startups. It's just kind of what I'm into. But uh, oftentimes I've invested in, in founders where I think uh, all the everything lines up except for the fact that this person would sell the business for the exact price they're raising at right now. And that's the piece that you kind of have to do an extra bit of due, due diligence on. If someone's trying to raise off you at a $6 million valuation, and at the same time, they would sell their business today at $6 million and be perfectly happy. Then you have a bit of a concern, which is that like the nature, even at early stage, even at tiny checks like I write, you're, you're, you're planting 100 flowers, hoping that a few bloom. And the ones that bloom, they really have to like pay back. Uh, they can't just be like a 1.5x or whatever. They need to be like a 10, 20, 40, 50x. And uh, I think that's a danger. Like um, if the founders aren't really, if they like the idea of playing startup, but not really doing startup, uh, then you'll have a problem, you know. So, like, so that's probably the the one uh, new criteria I've added since I started. Got it. Now, if I was to put you into a time machine, and I bring you back in time to that moment where you know you were just building software, you know, thinking about maybe you know starting a company for you guys, if you had that opportunity of having a chat with your younger self and giving that younger self one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why? I mean, obviously, you know, you've been at Intercom for about, you know, almost 12 years. So, I mean, there's a lot of lessons learned there along the way. Honestly, I think some of the areas I personally would say, like, I got wrong or made mistakes has been whenever I've really accepted what is, like, common knowledge or commonly accepted wisdom of, you know, either Silicon Valley or the tech industry or whatever, People will tell you things like when you hit series B, you need to do the following three things or like your first hire should always be a blah or if you don't have this, make sure you get that. And there's so much of that um, like handed down uh, weirdly unverified wisdom that uh, it's, it's nearly become like a cottage industry in and of itself where like VCs are even handing it down to other VCs and no one's ever actually cracked it open and looked at it and been like, is this thing definitely true? Like 
things you get told like in 2011 it was like you know something like you'll never have a big business not selling to small companies and like turns out that's not true you know turns out like like HubSpot are a phenomenal business, Shopify are a phenomenal business. Like loads of people have done really, really well without selling to big co- big companies. On the flip side, if you choose to sell to big companies, people will roll out like a ye old big company playbook and they'll tell you you need to do all this stuff and you need to stop doing all this other stuff. And I think it's very easy to just kind of take all that like as gospel, as it were, if you're so inclined and just be like, okay, well, I guess we have to go and do the things that like big companies do or whatever. And I, I guess the advice then, if I was to like try to net it out, would be like, don't do anything unless you deeply, like truly believe in it. Don't like be very wary of like, you know, trust falls with people who you don't know. Like, uh, so oftentimes, you, you know, I found myself lacking in, in, a, in confidence to say, hang on a second. I know I don't know how this works, but I also know that what you're telling me doesn't make any damn sense. And I wish I had more like fortitude earlier on to push back in those in in, in those areas and like um you know reject certain either like strategies or or like you know org designs or whatever it might be right like uh, they're all like different sort of like uh, implications of an opinion and um and like that's probably the one thing that I, I wish I gave to myself it's, it's some version of like back yourself or at the very least seek to learn but don't execute until you fully understand. Uh, that that's probably the biggest one um the only other one i'd say is um a lot of us are like this in intercom we have postponed any real celebration for like 11 years at this point and uh, it's always been like the next round or like you know what well, i'll be really happy when blah i'll be you know or like you know we should really have a proper party to celebrate blah and like it has literally never happened <laughs> you know uh uh, so it's kind of weird to like be, you know, 11 years in and like, you know, in some senses, Intercom has like, uh, certainly from the point of view of a 30 year old as who started it in like, uh, in 2011, Intercom has eclipsed all of my wildest dreams. Then at the same time, I've never had once had a chance to celebrate that. And that's kind of weird. Um, so maybe a, a second message would be just like, you know, please take time to enjoy the journey. Cause it almost feels fickle to do it now, you know? Yeah, no, I hear you. Well, I, I, I love that. Very profound. So for the people that are listening, you know, that would want to uh, reach out and say, hi, what is the best way for them to do so? At Twitter, uh, I'm just Daz Trainer, just my name on, on Twitter. And it's also like Daz Trainer. Oh, sorry, I'm, I'm Daz at Intercom or Daz Trainer at Gmail or whatever if they want to drop me a note. But yeah, well, happy to hear from anyone. Amazing. Well, hey, Des, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.